You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning, Sojourn Carlisle. I bring you guys greeting across town from Soldier East. want to uh, give a special recognition to uh, Pastor James and just his invitation to come preach before you guys this morning, uh, and also Pastor Nick for his gracious hospitality that he's been showing me today. So I greatly appreciate that, brother. So there's a common phrase uh, that we all use. I've used it at one point. You've all used it at one point. And if you're familiar with it, uh, feel free to finish it for me. It says, if it walks like a duck, have feathers like a duck, and if it quacks like a duck, it must be a, must be a duck. So this line of uh, reasoning and thinking is geared from being able to see certain things and witness certain characteristics and therefore be able to draw certain... Testing, testing. We'll keep going uh, to witness certain characteristics of what it is uh, in this situation, a specific duck. Uh, And at large, it works. We're generally able to see certain characteristics and draw right conclusions uh, from our observations. A couple of days ago, uh, my four-year-old Kingsley, she said, Daddy, let's play a game. So we're in the back. Yeah, or sure. Let's let's, let's play a game, honey. What do you want to play? And she says, I want you to make an animal noise, and I want to guess what it is. I said, let's go ahead and do it then. Uh, So, of course, I'm a really good duck. I know how to do a duck walk. I know how to uh, make a duck sound. And even on Amazon, I know I could purchase duck feathers if I needed to. Uh, so, so, so I do my my best duck walk. Uh, My question to you, even though I'm imitating that duck, does it actually make me a duck? It doesn't. Even the years of quacking and duck walking does not change the essence of who I am. And as I'm having this conversation with my with my daughter, after she guesses what I was, <clears throat> she looks me in my face, and she says, "Dada, you know you're not really a duck, right?" <laughs> I said, "Of course I am." And she's like, "Nope, you're just a dada." I said, "Fine, I am. I am just a dada." And that's a funny situation because it wasn't too difficult in my daughter's situation to recognize a six-four man is not a duck. But sometimes there's certain situations where you may not be able to see what's clearly there at the essence. Is it the real thing or is it an imitation? So this morning, through the two parables that were read, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to see what's the context. What exactly is Jesus communicating? We're going to see Jesus cut through actions and behaviors to reveal uh, what is truly there at the essence of the religious leaders that he's having a conversation with. Is it the real thing or is it an imitation? Before we dive in further, uh, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this morning. I pray that your spirit may move in and through me, that I may uh, clearly communicate uh, your word, your gospel, help me to hide behind your cross, and may the words that come out of my mouth be your words, nothing more and nothing less. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Thanks, brother. 
Can you guys hear me still? Awesome. Now, in order for us to uh, accurately understand the motives behind Jesus' uh, two condemning parables that he just had a conversation with, uh, we we must take a look to see what led up to this encounter. What got Jesus uh, in the situation that he's in currently to, to, to condemn these religious leaders that he's having a conversation with? And just as a reminder, uh, James preached this yesterday, but Jews from all over the world have pilgrimed uh, back to Jerusalem, the holy, the holy city. Uh, it is a time that they celebrate Passover, uh, the Jews' most prominent feast. And on Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as king, fulfilling prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Yesterday in a story, uh, which have been Monday, Jesus gets into his initial conversation with the religious leaders. And if you remember, Jesus is, is cleansing the temple. Religious leaders took offense to that. They didn't like that. And also, Jesus is healing in the temple He's healing those who are blind, and he's healing those who are lame. So currently, Jesus is having his second score off with temple leaders and temple authorities. So the previous 10 verses is going to set up our scene. So we now find ourselves in Tuesday of Holy Week. So earlier in the morning, uh, Jesus and his disciples, uh, they were heading back into the holy city of Jerusalem when Jesus was hungry and he saw a fig tree. So that brings us to Uh, verse 19. So verse 19 reads, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree had withered at once. So you see, this fig tree gave uh, every indication that it was a healthy tree. Jesus is hungry, walking along the path, and he sees the leaves that are blossom. He sees the leaves that are blossom on this tree, which means that fruit should be present, which means that fruit should be near. Upon further observation, he recognizes that this tree is fruitless. This tree serves no purpose. It's given the indication that figs are available when in fact that they're not. And his disciples were amazed at how quickly the fruit withered away after Jesus had cursed it for not producing fruit. And in the Old Testament, uh, we often see depicted Israel as being a, a, fruitless tr- a fruitless tree or fruitless vine because of their rebellion and because of their unbelief as well. And that leads us up to verse 23, which centers on the question of Jesus's authority. So verse 23 reads, what's your marriage say? And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So currently in this story, uh, Jesus's authority, his right to do the things that he is doing is on full display. It's the center of the question. So when they asked Jesus what authority he has to do these things, they would have had in mind the things that he did yesterday his cleansing of the temple, his healing the lame and healing the blind. It would also refer to the teaching that he is currently doing right now that's currently taking place before this encounter. And you have to remember, Jesus was not formally trained uh, in a traditional rabbinic school. He didn't belong to uh, the party of the Pharisees or the the party of the Sadducees. So to them, he looks as an illegitimate person to be making the noise that he is currently making. 
in their mind, Jesus lacked the proper authority to be doing these things. But Jesus, in his typical wisdom, he answers their questions with a question of his own. And we see that in verses 24 through 25. So Jesus said, I will also ask you one question, and if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or from human origin? So here, Jesus isn't trying to duck, and he's not trying to dodge these religious leaders' questions. Rather, uh, he's appealing to the authority in which John the Baptist had for his specific ministry, and he's asking them about it. You see, in answering Jesus' question, the religious leaders will find the answer to their question to Jesus on what authority he has. You know, one of my old college uh, roommates once asked me, he said, Mo, I just play football. He said, Mo, what state do you think produces the best college football players? And I said, well, what state am I from? <laughs> he said, California. I said, well, well done. But as you can see, when he asked me my question, my answer wasn't hidden, but it came in a form of a question. Jesus is doing the exact same thing. You guys have done it more than once, whether you guys have realized it or not. Jesus' answer is tucked in his offer and his invitation for the religious leaders to answer his question. Um, Bruner, who, wrote, who writes a marvelous uh, Matthew commentary, he writes that Jesus' question is already an answer. It clearly suggests that Jesus believes that both John the Baptist and his authority come directly from God. So now the religious leaders find themselves between a rock and a hard place. And we'll talk about why. <clears throat> so they realize that they rejected John the Baptist's message of repentance and faith. So John, if you guys are not familiar, John was the prophet who was sent before God, before Jesus as a forerunner. He was the one to call people to repentance and to point to the one who was coming after him, namely, which is Jesus. So for them to reject John's message concerning the Messiah Jesus is ultimately to reject God who gave John that authority to baptize and call people to repentance. On the other hand, they can't say John's baptism was of human origin because they fear the people. And the people realize and recognize that John was a, uh, was a, um, a Baptist sent by God, a prophet sent, from, sent by God. So these religious leaders, they refuse to verbally acknowledge where John's authority has come from. And Jesus refused to give them a direct answer. Rejecting John, as I mentioned, is a rejection of both the one who sent John, which is God, and the one who John pointed to, which is Jesus. Jesus has the authority to judge, and he's going to be rendering judgment in a form of these two parables. So their failure to answer Jesus's question in regards to John the Baptist's authority doesn't let these religious leaders off the hook. So that's what builds up the scene. Jesus in, in the temple, he's praying. And once again, these religious leaders are here and they're questioning him about his authority. First parable that was read to us was a parable of the two sons. And at the conclusion of the parable of the two sons, uh, Jesus makes it crystal clear 
Jesus makes it crystal clear that one son represents the religious leaders, while the other son represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes as well. And any devout Jew that's hearing this would have been appalled that they're in the same conversation as people so low as tax collectors and as prostitutes, the pariahs of the current culture and situation. Once they heard that tax collectors and prostitutes were entering the kingdom before them, you can imagine the anger, uh, the rage. And just to be clear, when Jesus tells them that the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering before him, Jesus isn't saying, hey, they're going in first, and then you guys follow. Jesus is saying, no, they are entering, and you will be excluded from the kingdom of God. It's a very hard thing to digest for people who have tried so hard to go out of their way to impress God and to impress men as well. Those who initially turn aside God's invitation, which in this situation would have been tax collectors and the prostitutes, we must understand that that isn't always somebody's permanent state. Their initial rejection to work in the vineyard was a clear no. But as you can see in the parable, they changed their mind, a.k.a. they repented and they turned versus the other group. They paid lip, lip homage to Jesus or paid lip homage to God and said, I'll go, but they never actually went. And those who had superficial uh, confidence in paying uh, that lip service to God, they had the, the understanding that they were automatically in. But here what Jesus taught earlier in his ministry. So Jesus taught that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, hey, you can, you can have the right saying, you can say the right things, but you can have a heart that's not after the Father. It all came down to this. One group did the will of the Father, and the other group had not. And the question becomes, what is the will of the Father? What did the Father want? And we see this answered in John chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus taught earlier. He said, hey, this is my Father's will, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on a son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on that last day. You see from a societal level that these religious leaders, they were the model for holiness. They were the standard for holiness. They were devout people. They sought to follow God's law, but somehow in the midst, they missed God's heart and they missed God's plan as a result of that. They created rules and tradition on top of God's already established law so that they could be sure that they were blameless. They were the ones that Jewish families would see out in the marketplace and say, I want my kids to be like that. I want to have them over for dinner. I want them over at birthday parties. Those are the people that I want to be around. And on the other hand, tax collectors and prostitutes appear to turn their back on God, live a life of greed, deceit, and open defilement. No one will openly invite a social pariah like a tax collector or a prostitute into their midst. No one aspired to be like them. No one said, I hope my kid grows up and models that person. They were treated just like scum. So what exactly are we dealing with today? How can people who appear to be so right be counted wrong? And how can people that are wrong be counted right? How can these quote-unquote bad people find their way into God's kingdom? Well, I think one of the keys recognizing the tax collectors and the prostitutes 
they recognized that they were spiritually bankrupt. They recognized that they were in need of mercy. They knew that from society every single day that they were outcasts. So the thought of them being accepted by repentance and faith, it was a joy. It was an invitation that was too good to turn down. They knew they were outsiders, but they knew that they had the ability to come on the inside. The religious leaders, on the other hand, as we see, um, they were incapable of seeing that. So John in the wilderness preaching on uh, repentance and belief, religious leaders are like, huh? Repent from what? Belief in who? To their eyes, they were God's gift to Israel and the world. They had a spiritual posture that didn't need repentance. They didn't need to trust. They didn't need to believe anything. They thought they had it right and they were sure of it. Thus, the religious leaders, they rejected God's righteousness since they were unwilling to believe and to submit to John's message. They rejected it. And we see that listed here in verse 32. It says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. He's referring to the religious leaders. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. How sad of a situation and of an indictment that when John the Baptist is saying that he came in the way of righteousness, it sums up that John gospel, John's message pointed to Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate means to righteousness. So when the Pharisees and the religious leaders, when they reject John the Baptist's message that points to Jesus for righteousness, and since they have rejected God's righteousness and they have sought to build and to establish their own righteousness. And like the fig tree that was cursed earlier that day, we now see the resemblance of fruitfulness in the face of these religious leaders. Uh, to be clear, these religious leaders, uh, they have fruit in their life. If you read through the Gospels and, and you've evaluated it and you investigate it, they have fruit, but the problem was this fruit was handmade. So these are people, they would tithe, they would pray, they would fast, they would do many different things to make sure that you were able to see their efforts before God. So they were working, but they weren't doing the works that God required of them which is to believe in the Son. But Jesus identifies himself as the one who can produce true fruit in someone's life, that produce true and overflowing fruit in your life, my life, and others as well. Authentic fruit of a new life similar to a tree that's planted by endless streams of water. Jesus is teaching constantly here and previously on the necessity and a source of fruit in a person's life. And we see this pretty clearly in John chapter 15, verses four and verse five. So and then Jesus teaches, he says, hey, abide in me, rest, trust in me. So abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in a vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus makes a promise that, hey, if you rest in me, if you come to me, uh, if you find your ultimate value in me as a byproduct of that, you will produce fruit. The fruit of the religious leaders, it was manufactured. 
the fruit that comes from trust in Jesus, it overflows, it is authentic, and it is legitimate, and it produces a life of gratitude, a life of love. In the believer's life, uh, we see the initial fruit from God in the form of repentance and faith. That's the initial fruit, initially coming into a relationship with God. And we also see the Spirit of God constantly producing fruit in our lives. And we see that really clearly in Galatians chapter 5, where uh, we see just the different fruit of the Spirit listed out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is important to know that fruit, fruit doesn't equal perfection, brothers and sisters. Don't think that I have to perfect myself and offer this fruit to God. On the other hand, fruit is the result of authentic faith, something that God produces in your life and in my life as well. So these religious leaders, as we see, they were unable to produce the kingdom fruit because they believed, they failed to trust and believe in a king. They rejected God's means of salvation, and therefore they proved themselves of unworthy of entering God's kingdom. And I think here's a distinct word for us today. Uh, we must be careful not to distinct uh, church familiarity with repentance and faith. We live in the more be the northern, the most northern state of the Bible Belt. We're familiar with hymns. We're familiar with church songs. We're familiar with VBS. My hope and my invitation is that you are here and you are not um, appealing to the things that you are familiar with as what causes a relationship with God, but that you understand that repentance and faith is the entryway into a relationship with God, and these are byproducts of a faithful life in following God. So here in the first parable, we see that uh, Jesus' indictment on them for not entering the kingdom of God themselves. In Jesus' second parable, which we'll see the parable of the tenants or the parable of the farmers, um, we'll see that they are now being indicted for being unfit to lead God's people. So in this situation, we see that uh, a landowner leasing his vineyard to tenants, to farmers, this wouldn't have been anything that would have been new to first century, first century Israel. In and near Palestine in the first century, there were all types of uh, practices and contracts that were drawn up to establish agreements between landowners and also tenants as well. A lot of time there were frictions, there were disagreements, and sometimes there were bad blood between tenants and the landowners that they were working for. So once again, Jesus is using a very common practice to bring an indictment on these religious leaders. And vineyards, vineyards are used commonly throughout Scripture. It's used all the way throughout the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. So in order to understand, Jesus, what are you referring to in this parable? We have to walk through it to unpack what is the context in which Jesus is utilizing the vineyard and who are these characters Jesus is using. So you must understand this passage. So in this parable that we're looking at, the second parable, uh, many scholars believe that Jesus is drawing from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. In it, Isaiah writes, speaking of God, he said, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes 
but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So God says, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither prune nor cultivate it, and briars and thorns will grow there, and I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So Isaiah points the picture of a God who loves and he, he cares for Israel. And if you look as far as the detail, not only in Isaiah's passage, but also our passage, uh, God has established everything listed here needed for them to bear fruit and be a blessing to the nations, what they were supposed to be and supposed to do. Instead, their rebellion and their wickedness portray them as producing uh, sour grapes, bad fruit, inedible. And as a result, Judgment came upon the Israelites. Well, in our parable, Jesus is using an adaptation of Isaiah's text. And what he's doing, he's bringing an onus on the religious leaders themselves as being the ones who failed to produce the fruit that God has required. As we look a little bit deeper, we see that uh, the fruit God desires amongst the people of Israel, um, faithfulness, uh, justice, true devotion, a heart that follows God, not just sacrifices, not just going through the motions. In Matthew chapter 20, verse uh, 21, verse 33, in the parable, we see that the owner is God. So as I go back to, let me see here, verse 33, as he opens up this parable, it says, listen to another parable. This is the beginning of this parable. It says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built the watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some of the farmers and then he moved to the other place. So here we see God's love and his devotion for his people, Israel. He see his care for it. He dug in a wine press. He has provided every means for these people to produce fruit. Not only that, as he's gone, he places tenants to work it. He places those leaders that were currently there. When I was younger, I didn't have many possessions, but the things that matter most to me, the things that were most valuable to me, I made sure that I went outside of my way to make sure they were protected. So as a kid, all I had was basketball cards, football cards, uh, and some pogs. If you don't know pogs, don't, wor- don't, 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 don't worry about that. But this is all that I had, and they meant everything to me. So I had Ziploc bags that I would put these things in. I had a shoebox, and the most secure place in my home was underneath my bed. I knew my dogs wouldn't get there. I knew my sister wouldn't get there. They were protected. And I protected these things because they had ultimate value to me, and I knew one day, just one day, these things would produce value for me. I'll be able to uh, reap the reward from keeping these things safe and keeping these things secure. 
Well, here in this passage, not only, does we, not only do we see uh, God's love, his care, and his providence, we also see uh, a God of immense patience towards these tenants. A God who is patient and a God who is long-suffering. When it was time to produce the fruit that they were hired to produce, they were unable and the tenants were unwilling. More than that, they treated the owners of the servant, oh, sorry, they treated the owner's servant with great contempt. And when they were sent by him, to collect what was due, we see how they were treated in detail. We see how many times the owner sent his servants time and time after again. And we see this listed quite clearly in verses 34 through 39. So this reads, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, beat one and killed another and stone the third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. So here and all throughout the Old Testament, God's messengers and his prophets are, are constantly characterized as his servants. So God kept sending, sending, sending messengers, pleading with them, Israel, my love, come back to me. Israel, my sweet child, come back to me. Israel wouldn't, their leaders wouldn't. And here we see the wickedness of the tenants on full display cultivating in the murder of the owner's son. And they thought to themselves, if we could just kill the son, we would inherit the vineyard for, the vineyard for ourselves. We see the extreme wickedness of their hearts. We see that John the Baptist lost his head for his unfaithfulness. And after this week, we will see our savior hanging upon a tree for his faithfulness to God. We see constantly throughout scriptures how many times prophets were treated, how they were the, the ones that God dearly loved and God's mouthpiece, and he sent people constantly, hey, come to me, turn back to me, return to me, but they failed to do so. And we see that clearly in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 37 and 38. This is during the hall of faith in uh, Hebrews 11. It says, they were stoned they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So we're seeing that these religious leaders are no different from their fathers of old, treating God's prophets and God's messengers with contempt being unable to endure and to hear the word of God. And lastly here, we see God's judgment. So at this point of the story, Jesus has not revealed who the characters are. Us being 2,000 years later, we see it crystal clear. Them hearing it in that moment, they would not have automatically identified themselves as the one who were the wicked tenants. They may have easily thought of the Romans as the wicked tenants. They're like, yeah, Jesus, these guys are here. They're wicked. 
They're not giving to God what is God's. They may have thought that these were the Gentiles that Jesus was referring to. But here we also see that Jesus's judgment is just. Uh, he actually allowed these religious leaders to answer the question of what should happen to these tenants before he revealed the identity to them. So Jesus flips it back to them to make the decision, to make the just decision. Verse 40, Jesus says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus lays it out. Hey, what would you do? And then we see the response. They said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who would give him his share of the crop at harvest time. They judged rightly because they didn't see themselves as being the ones that were wicked yet. And Jesus affirms their, cho- their, their self-pronounced judgment uh, by quoting uh, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. So Jesus didn't say, yeah, that's the correct answer. He goes on to fulfill scripture and report how this is true in their ears. So this is what Jesus replies to them after they identify uh, what should take place. So Jesus says, have you never read, have you never heard the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus is now revealing, he's saying, guess what? You are the builders of Israel and you are the ones who have rejected this stone, the cornerstone, the most important stone in any foundation. God is at work and he is accomplishing his will at the hands of sinful men, constantly at work through these men. And it is glorious to behold when we understand the truth of the gospel, we see how Jesus was unjustly murdered and unjustly killed, we cry out injustice because it was, but it never caught God off guard. God is saying through the midst of this, I am working. And what I am working, you can't see right now because it's going to create sorrow, it's going to create grief, but there will come a time where this cornerstone that is rejected, this will be the stone that has been worshiped. Jesus tells them that the kingdom is being taken away from them and it's given to a person who's producing his fruits. So when Jesus says it's been taken from them and given to a person producing his fruit, he's not excluding Israel from the kingdom. We know that the early church will consisted of Jews and Gentiles. What he is saying is that these religious leaders are being displaced from the leadership of the community that God is establishing, the community that God is bringing. And we see that clearly God's people are too valued and too precious in his sight to allow this to continue to happen. God will appoint leaders of his church who know, who preach, and who lead others to his son and not to reject them. Their blindness and their hardness of heart, they forfeited the gift and the honor as teachers and leaders of the people of God. They forfeited that gift. When we look at Matthew uh, chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus says, when he's referring to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he says, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if blindly the blind, both will fall into a pit. So in today's passage, we see that these religious leaders, they were unfit to enter the kingdom of God themselves. They didn't know the way. They didn't know the path. And since they didn't know the path and unwilling to come underneath God's rule, they are then unfit to lead God's people 
to God. They have this place themselves. So where do we go from here? I would love to hand out and just offer you guys just a few applications, a couple ways to, to think and process this week, either by yourself as you're driving with a friend, with a spouse, or maybe even your community group. First thing I will hold before you guys is this, analyze your life. Analyze your life. Is there fruit in your life? I'm not asking you guys to look for perfection, uh, but there, is, there genuine, is there a genuine change of heart? Are you able to realize that, hey, I'm not perfect, but at the same time, I'm not the man or I'm not the woman that I once used to be? Is there newness of life as a result of an authentic relationship with Jesus? In John chapter 15, verses 8, Jesus says this. He said, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. It is honoring and it's glorifying to the Father to see fruit produce, but he recognizes the fruit produced that he values and that he desires is tied inextricably as a result of authentic faith in his son. So don't analyze your, your fruit as how familiar you are with church lingo, how many hymns you know, how you can recite certain things. Get along with God and take a look at your heart. God's word invites us to reflect and to analyze ourselves. Second, uh, what is the source of your fruit? Remember, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they produce much fruit. But the problem of it, it was a fruit that was made and manufactured by their own hands. It was a fruit of their own obedience, seeking that as their approval before God. What is the source of your fruit? Does it come for your own intentions, your own actions, or does it come from a relationship with Jesus? And one way you can evaluate yourself, maybe even today, is to fill in a blank and ask yourself the question, I believe I will enter the kingdom of God because. I'll say that again. I believe I will enter the kingdom of God because. And there's one of two answers. One is by repentance and faith in Jesus and what he has done and accomplished. The other is any other answer. Sit with God and ask these questions to yourself. Do I have the righteousness from God on the basis of faith or am I seeking to prove myself righteous? And lastly, just the invitation. If you are here, if you're here in person or maybe if you're online, wherever you may be, the invitation is to trust God is a good God. God is a good God. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. God doesn't sit there and say, hey, when you get everything together, when you, when you produce enough fruit yourself, come to me and here is my kingdom. God is much different. God draws near to you. So my encouragement to you guys, if you don't know Jesus, don't be like the Pharisees and the religious leaders that harden their hearts in the days of Christ Jesus. This gift is free and it's free only on a basis of faith because you cannot earn it and we do not deserve it. Lastly, same part of our invitation <clears throat> for you guys that are here. If you guys know Christ, if you guys have been walking with Christ, my invitation to you guys is <clears throat> to evaluate yourself and your rhythms of life. There are, <clears throat> there are neighbors 
There are family members you guys have. There, there are coworkers who do not know Jesus. There are people that are trying their hardest to come into the kingdom by their own work. And if you're here and if you're in Christ, you know and you understand that we can only access that by faith as a gift. So my encouragement to you guys is not to stand back and let people try to fight and claw and scratch their way in, but will God give us great courage to speak into these people, to speak into these lives. May our neighbors and may the nations be glad because of this good news that they've received. Let me pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.